Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast. As you heard in the intro, we are a podcast about movement, part of what makes your life complete. I really believe that movement should be looked at as a lifestyle and not just an activity. One of the main goals of Moving to Live, in addition to me getting to talk to interesting people literally all over the world, is to work to break down the knowledge silos in movement. By that, what I mean is people tend to only talk or get information from people who have things in common with them. So physical therapists talk to physical therapists, physical medicine physicians talk to physical medicine physicians, personal trainers talk to personal trainers, never recognizing that many of them have the same goal to improve the quality of movement and to increase the movement of people. I'm excited to interview today's guest. I think we have been LinkedIn connections for a number of years. I'm not sure how (laughs) we connected, probably a friend of a friend. But as you've heard me say before on the podcast, one of the ways I find people is I say this in the friendliest, least threatening way as we stalk them on the internet. We see things that they post, we see pictures, we look at their backgrounds. And as I was looking for the next round of guests, I realized that one of my connections in LinkedIn probably had a really interesting story and definitely believe that movement was a lifestyle and and not just an activity. So we're here with Andrea Leonard. Andrea, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. My question I ask every Moving to Live uh, guest at the beginning is, what's your elevator talk? So you meet somebody in <laughs> the elevator or you're standing in line in Whole Foods oh and they say, what do you do? What do you tell them? I, I usually pause and go, um, well, technically I'm a personal trainer, but I don't have any clients. And they're like, then what do you do? And I say, well, actually, now I write courses on cancer and exercise, and I train other trainers around the world to help cancer patients during and after treatment. And then they're like, oh, my God, that is so awesome. So it's actually not even a minute. It's like 30 seconds. So, so some would call you a master trainer since you're training other trainers. Other people would call you a fitness educator. 
I'll yeah. call you. I'll call you a movement aficionado. There you go. That and works I, for me. That's my new elevator speech. I'm a, I'm a movement aficionado. I was <laughs> I actually, I, I actually interviewed uh, Natalie Dow, who's in Singapore, and I said, "What do you do?" And she kind of hemmed and hawed about it in a matter similar to you and said, well, I'm just going to go with what somebody told me I am. I'm a fitness entrepreneur. There you go. It's funny because we just watched that um, uh, Crazy Rich Asians or whatever the movie is last night. And I taught a workshop. In fact, the last workshop I, I taught was in Singapore. And so I watched it with my daughters. I was there. I was there. Look, look, I was there. I was at the top of the bar with the pool. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. It's the cool six, de- six degrees of separation they talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I talk about that too. And I know I want to spend time when we talk to you in two weeks about uh, your why you're doing fitness education for trainers who work with uh, survivors from cancer and people who currently are battling cancer. But I think the first question before we do that is I want to find out a little bit more about you and how you got into that. And the best way to start is I know that you are a cancer survivor. Were you active before you were diagnosed with cancer? Were you one of those kids who was active or was this something (laughs) that cancer was kind of the event? It's like, okay, I'm going to change my life completely around. Yeah. I mean, you know, growing up in the eighties, I mean, activity was, was a, a little bit different. I was never what you would call an athlete. I didn't play team sports because I was always afraid to be the one that would screw up or, you know, whatever. I, I just wasn't into team sports. So I ran track uh, and I was really fast and that was it. And then in 1984, in my senior year of high school, I actually got a job, like a work study, whatever it was that we did. Um, it was called Holiday Esprit Center. I think it was part of Bally's. And I still laugh about this because I got paid three thirty-five an hour. We wore shiny blue lycra tights, a shiny blue long sleeve leotard with leg warmers and K-Swiss shoes. I mean, so 80s and showed people how to work the circuit when I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And this, um, this was the time where somebody would come in and they'd have the little cards with the names of the exercises <laughs> and they do the circuit of eight to 10 exercises. Uh, Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And it's like, you know, here I am 18 years old and, uh, you know, but everything has changed so much. And it was neon lights and chrome. And at the time, Victoria Principal and Heather Locklear were the spokespeople. And I got to be in a commercial with Heather Locklear. And, you know, it was it was really fun. And that's what that's what actually got me into fitness. So I started lifting weights in 84. um, And then it was, gosh, not even five months later that I was diagnosed with cancer and um, having thyroid cancer. And for anybody who isn't familiar with what thyroid does, it pretty much regulates um, your day-to-day, your energy, your, 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 your body functioning. I mean, you name it. So I had gained weight. I was sluggish. Uh, it affected my self-esteem, my self-confidence. So the way that I helped myself uh, physically and emotionally recover was to exercise. And that's gone through um, various uh, different stages throughout the years. But weight training has always been been a staple, if you will. And then I've had other interests as well. What were your, if you can remember back then, what were your physicians who were helping you with the treatment of cancer? What was their response when they learned that you were lifting weights and doing activity? 
To be honest, um, I'm going to say one I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure I remember enough that that was never even talked about. You know, I first, when I first actually got into this as a career, um, as far as the cancer and exercise, and in, I believe I started in 1995, there was virtually nothing available. So, and that's already nine years later. So back in 84, it probably wasn't even thought about as something that would help a cancer survivor with their quality of life, even, even in the most elementary, you know, calories in, calories out. It just wasn't discussed. To say nothing of the effect that exercise can have on the emotional and psychological. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And so, you know, it, it is hard to say if it was ever mentioned, but I, I think I would recall that if it had been, and I have no recollection of it. What was it that stimulated you at that time to say, I'm going to lift weights and I'm going to do this? Because I would imagine you didn't feel very good. And it would be much easier to just say, well, I'm going to go to bed and take care of myself and rest. Um, well, and uh, this, this is probably a peculiar motivator, but I uh, grew up in Maryland. And so I spent my summers oftentimes in Ocean City, Maryland at the beach. And after... After high school, uh, we graduated. It was like, okay, we're going to the beach. We're going to, you know, live there for the summer. And I had been there about two weeks before I got the call that said, you have probable thyroid cancer. We need you to come home and have surgery. So I had met this guy and was in La La Land that summer. We were, we were dating. Um, and probably four days after my surgery, he actually drove me back to the beach because I didn't have a car. Um, and within a month, I had gained about 20 pounds because I wasn't able to get on the thyroid medication yet. So I had no energy, whatever. Long story short, we were at a nightclub one night. I was with my girlfriends and he was probably there with his guy friends and we were all going to meet. And they had this game called Selectrocution. And we all had these, you know, fake names. I might have been uh, Daffodil and he was Godzilla. And you would send a message across, you know, a digital screen at the bar. And he said, um, Daffodil, lose weight. It's over. Godzilla. Ugh. Yep. And I bring this up a lot of times in my workshops. And I talk about how things we say to people have such a profound effect that, you know, these words come out of your mouth and you don't think how they're going to affect somebody. I mean, this is 37 years later and it scarred me. Um, and there was a, uh, another person shortly thereafter who said, you know, your, your butts as wide as Connecticut Avenue. And it, you know, you go, what are, what are people thinking when they say these things that are so hurtful? And that caused me to have, a form of an eating disorder. It didn't manifest as anorexia or bulimia. Uh, I, I would summarize it as body dysmorphia, but that is actually what got me into the fitness field permanently. You know, in high, when I was doing the work study in high school, it was kind of just for fun. I, I didn't think about that as a career. I was actually going to college to be a CIA agent. And um, it was, you know, probably a few years into it where I said, wow, you know, I, I'm really struggling here and I could get into fitness and not only help myself, 
um, because I have to be a shining example, but I could also help others who are going through similar circumstances. And I, I wasn't even thinking about cancer, working with cancer patients at the time, just other human beings. Do you think uh, part of the reason for choosing the career, obviously you got into it because of those comments, but choosing the career is the realization is the changes and the benefits that I've seen. I want to pass this on to other people. Without a doubt. And, you know, there have been many variables throughout the years, just in my own experience. I mean, let's face it, I've gone through high impact aerobics, CrossFit, power, you know, power flow yoga. I, I mean, you name it, you name the trend, you name the diet. I've done it. And so I can really speak from experience and, and people tell me, you know, we can tell you're really, you know, passionate, Andrea, but we can also tell that you, you speak from your heart. And that's something that's always been important to me to be genuine. I wear my heart on my sleeve and people will either, you know, judge me or love me as a result of that. And if somebody's going to judge me, quite frankly, I don't want them in my life. And I don't need to be loved by everybody, but it does feel good, especially when you have that impact on somebody where, where you can leave them inspired and motivated and also feeling that they're not alone. Because I think at that time, now my mother had been diagnosed three years earlier with breast cancer. Um, and I, I have to tell you, at 18 years old, I don't think I... I really understood what was going on. Um, you know, my mother told me that uh, I had said to her angrily that she gave me cancer. And so, you know, what does an 18-year-old know? So a lot of it is is repressed. But the things that I do remember, the, the primary thing in my life was my body image and my self-esteem at a time where it was critical. Um, you know, when you're 18 years old and going to college and you have no self-esteem and no self-confidence and you're walking onto a university campus with 60,000 people or God knows, you know, what the number was at University of Maryland at the time, um, that, that, that was, that played a huge role in who I was at the time and, and who I would become. And when did you graduate from Maryland? <clears throat> I graduated, in, I graduated in 1990. I, I was on the uh, six-year plan. I took some time off to go try and uh, become a movie star, which needless to say, that never happened. This, this makes it a very small world because the summer of 1989, I was on the University of Maryland campus. I took two huh. semesters of chemistry and did an internship at the strength and conditioning department. Oh, wow. Very cool. Okay. Uh, college Park. Were you at College Park or Baltimore? I was at College Park. Yeah. Yep. Go Terps. I, I, I was, if you were there, you remember it. You probably remember the Vu in the cellar. Oh my God. I lived uh, up the hill in the apartment complex from there and all of the football players were the bouncers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully you don't remember me from the Vu because I'm not sure I'd want to be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can pretty much guarantee you that the people who knew me in the 80s mm -hmm. um, would have a completely different opinion of me than the people who know me now. Uh, definitely worlds apart. It, it was a very good educational experience for me as far as <laughs> doing the internship. But I also remember 
seeing my TA from the chemistry class in one of the bars at like 11 o'clock at night and say, <laughs> you know, you do really good work, but your work is messy. It's almost like you're lying on the floor watching TV. Oh my I said, God. Well, actually, that's what I am doing. <laughs> All right. Right. And then there was another place, like a couple doors down another bar. I don't remember what it was, but we would go there as well. And then across uh, the, the other side of the street, there was a pizza joint. So mm-hmm. after we had our beer and what have you, we'd go over there and get a calzone at, you know, midnight, which was part of the reason I had, and not only was I overweight to begin with from not having a thyroid, now my eating habits and everything were deplorable because I was at college and partying and, you know, all the other stuff. So it was quite the learning experience. And I'm interested, I mean, clearly you've done a great job of explaining why you got into fitness personally. How long was it in college before you said, you know, I think I can make this a career? And how did you go from being the person in the spandex showing somebody how to use this electorized machine to <laughs> say, I'm going to be a serious professional and this is going to be a profession and not just something I do because, wow, they're going to pay me to stand around? Yeah, and well, actually, I, I think it was more like right after college because um, I ad- actually, de- excuse me, I graduated with a degree in criminal justice. Um, you know, it was one of those things that I had to, I did all of my um, elective towards criminal justice and criminology up front. So by the time that I decided I wanted to do something different, I was so far into it, I would have pretty much had to start all over again. So I, I took the long, hard road, which was, um, you know, I, I, I got out of college, I got my ACSM certified personal trainer, I did Cooper Institute special populations, I did ACE certified personal training, NASM uh, personal trainer, corrective exercise specialist, performance enhancement specialist, and um, basically I had to crawl my way up the totem pole as opposed to being the person who had the PhD or the master's and My mother has been constantly, you know, Andrea, you should be getting your master's, you should be getting your doctorate. And I was a single mom for a long time. And it just, there just was never the time to go back to school. So I worked and I worked and I, um, you know, there, there have been people throughout the years, very few, but who have criticized me because, you know, I'm just a personal trainer. Um, I've never claimed to be the best I've never claimed to be the smartest or the most well-educated, but, you know, it's kind of like school of school of hard knocks, school of life versus school. So I've gone through the school of hard knocks, school of life, and I was really fortunate to be able to work with physical therapists, occupational therapists, nutritionists, the chiefs of breast surgery at Georgetown, Johns Hopkins, GW to to create the material that has become uh, the longevity of my career and and ongoing you know I, I consider myself as the representative for a, a, a group of medical professionals I'm just the one that's putting it in um, book form and teaching it to everybody else it's it's much like a teacher at a university they didn't necessarily write the books although I am but I'm not doing it alone you know you know so mm-hmm. it's something that I, I still consider and my, my mother is a huge advocate she still goes to school at 80 years old just for fun and um, the day may may still come when when life lets up a little bit that I do it just so on my gravestone it can say you know Andrea Leonard PhD <laughs> or whatever. 
Well, I always tell people that my dad went to law school at 74, so it's never too late. Wow. Wow. But, it, but, it, but it's also one could look at from just from looking at the conferences that you've presented at, you've clearly have gone to those conferences that you may have the equivalent of a master's degree in knowledge just from the sheer number of conferences, because rather than reading about something in the textbook, if you go to a, an ACSM conference, very often you hear the original researcher talking about that information rather than Absolutely. somebody else well, summarizing it. And, and I mean, I, I've spent uh, the last 23 years researching, I've written 14 books. I've, you know, if, if there were, a way to be awarded for the amount of work that I've done, then I, I would say I've definitely earned my master's and I'm probably well on my way to, to my doctorate. But, you know, we don't live in that world that I know of. But if anybody's listening and wants to give me a degree, <laughs> I'm down. Honorary degree. There you go. I'll do, I'll do the work. So I'm curious, you said that you graduated with a criminal justice degree, made the decision to make personal training your career. And mm -hmm. at some point you didn't really switch directions, but either consciously or unconsciously made the realization that if you want to survive in a field for a long time, having a career, then you either have to do something better than most other people or differently. And I yeah. think allowing yourself or coming up with, I won't say coming up with the idea, but choosing to integrate personal training with as part of the treatment for cancer definitely is doing something different than what most other people. How did you get to that point where it's like, okay, this is a niche that I can fall into, or this yeah. is a niche that I can make my well, own. Actually, I remember that very well. Um, so it was, uh, 1995 and I was the, I trained my mother's breast surgeon, Catherine Alley and her husband, um, my mother had been diagnosed with her second breast cancer. And at this point I'd been a trainer for five years. And she said, Andrea, can you help me recover from this surgery? Because she had permanent nerve damage. She had a frozen shoulder. She had to go through, um, uh, painful years of physical therapy because she was never told to move her arm. She went through detox for months at Johns Hopkins and all this that could have been avoided. And so I, I remember saying to Catherine Alley, Dr. Alley, what do you think about writing a book on exercises for breast cancer? And she said, that's an amazing idea. And there was virtually nothing. So going back to 1995, when I began, there were two other people doing what I was doing. I just didn't know it. And one was uh, Rocky Mountain Cancer Institute, which I think now is like the University of Northern Colorado. And then uh, Eric Dirac, which is medical health and fitness. So the three of us slash our organizations all were the founding fathers, if you will, of cancer exercise. Now, there are other researchers and, and people um, out there, but as far as educators on cancer and exercise, when I've traced back the roots, that, that's what it goes back to. So there was virtually no internet. It was just coming to be. Um, I barely knew how to use a computer. Um, so I... One of one of the trainers who worked for me was actually doing her master's at GW, and she decided that she would do it on breast cancer and exercise, and so she she collaborated with me, and that's where we enlisted uh, Ted Singaris, who was at, um, I think he was at Georgetown at the time. Shauna Willie was at GW. She's now the chief of breast surgery at Georgetown, um, and I can't even remember the third right now. Forgive me. But in any case... We spent three years working on this book, which ended up being published in 2000. 
and it was called Essential Exercises for Breast Cancer Survivors. And to this day, it is still considered, from what I'm told, like the Bible of breast cancer recovery. And um, a lot has changed, but a lot of the fundamentals have have not. And, um, you know, I, I say the same thing. I'm like, as a, as a trainer, because I've been interviewed so many times, and when they ask me to give advice to new trainers, I'm like, you have to either do it better or different. So, you know, touche. Um, it wasn't something I necessarily set out to do or to, I, I didn't dream of doing this when I was a grown up, um, nor did I dream of being a single mother or any number of things that have happened in my life. But if what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, then I am definitely Xena, the warrior princess. <laughs> so... Uh, it, it has kind of snowballed since then. It started off with just breast cancer. I created a nonprofit back in 2000 called the Breast Cancer Survivors Foundation. And I was raising money to give to breast cancer survivors that they could have exercise sessions free of charge with a cancer, breast cancer exercise specialist. And that was when I wrote my first training manual uh, so this was 2000. It was about 40 pages of breast cancer and exercise. I would travel around the country with a dry erase board because I didn't know how to use PowerPoint. And I mean, I, I remember teaching workshops in um, on the top of the building, you know, in, in a health club in LA or in something that would be similar to a circuit training, like a curves or what have you. And they're like, I walk in there and they're like, yeah, we'll just sit on the, on the equipment and you can present. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. I really didn't. And it's evolved light years since then. Thank God. <laughs> so now the handbook's 500 pages. It's the 11th edition and I'm soon to be going into the 12th. And we cover 25 types of cancer, pediatrics, everything you ever or never wanted to know about cancer treatment and recovery. We are fortunate enough to be talking to Andrea Leonard. She is a 34-year cancer survivor and the president and founder of Cancer Exercise Training Institute. She's kind of giving us a brief overview of her travels from a high school runner and Ocean City aficionado <laughs> to one of the experts in the world on exercising and cancer. We're going to come back in two weeks and really hone in on the exercise in cancer, why it's important for cancer patients, and how exercise for cancer patients and cancer survivors might differ from people who have not been diagnosed or treated for cancer. So, Andrea, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in two weeks. I look forward to it as well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about moving to live. 
It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.